you're going to do that, okay? All right, well, let's get started in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are going to finish chapter 14. Yay! We've been at this for a while, and I hope that you have come to understand that 1 Corinthians 14 is actually much easier to understand than maybe you used to think or that many times other people think. One thing you need to be reminded of, if you don't remember, is that historically the church in Corinth was a carnal church. People were selfish and they were deceived. And specifically the use of speaking in tongues, which is the theme that's being addressed in chapter number 14 of 1 Corinthians, well, it was used, at some level anyway, as an emotional outburst. People were jumping up in the middle of the church service to add something to the word that was being preached. In the chapter, as we've studied, there's some things that are just very clearly stated. For example, in verse 33, it says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. That's a very clear truth, is it not? But what the Corinthians were doing, and the reason why that's included, obviously, is because what the Corinthians were doing in their practice of speaking in tongues was very confusing. The focus that we have today, we're going to start in verse number 34, and we're going to run till the end of the chapter. The very last verse really kind of summarizes the whole theme of what's being trying to be communicated in chapter 14. Let all things be done decently and in order. And that's exactly what the Lord is trying to help us to understand. And if we're going to get into this, and we are, I, I just want to define the term for you. So we're going to talk about the word order. Uh, the word order literally means a fixed su succession. Things come in an order. There's a fixed succession of events. Most frequently throughout the Bible, the term order is used, for example, in the context of the priesthood and the fixed succession of the Levitical priesthood. For example, you remember maybe the term, the order of Melchizedek. And so we see terms like that used. But otherwise, if it's not in that context of usage, it's particularly and primarily used in the context of what is being done in the New Testament in the assembly of the church. In other words, when the body of Christ is gathered together like we are here this morning, there is a need for orderliness. There's a need for orderliness. And so there's, we see this come up time and again in the New Testament and in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 and in verse 34, Paul talks about setting things in order. And the context of what he's talking about is the proper operation of the Lord's Supper or the communion. They were out of order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in verse number 1, it specifically talks about giving order to the procedure of receiving offerings from the church on the first day of the week when you're gathered together. So this giving of order is necessary with the context of giving offerings while the church is assembled together. Uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5 talks about setting things in order and ordaining elders in all of the churches because the leadership structure is necessary to guarantee that we have the right kind of order. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and also in verse 11, it talks about people who are disorderly. Uh, this disorderly behavior is something that is to be avoided because God loves order, right? God doesn't want to be involved in confusion. 
He's not the author of it. So he says when there's disorderliness going on in the congregation, well, you need to avoid that. And he so emphasizes this that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 5, he actually praises the church for maintaining order like they're supposed to. God is a God of order. He wants all things to be done decently and in order. And what God does is he gives specific direction for certain things. Not all things. There's room. But certain things when the church is gathered together. Some things, as we'll see today, are prohibited. Today's lesson is about one of them. And it just so happens to be the role of women speaking in the church. You know, this is the beauty of expository preaching. Whether you like it or not, you got to hit them all. So don't shoot the messenger. But allow myself to, I, I, I believe, ladies, you will be put at ease understanding the truth of the scripture is freeing as it always is. And short of the joking abuses of that such a statement, uh, God actually has some very amazing things for us to understand. Uh, specifically, and most importantly, the context of the chapter gives us the context of that statement, and that's speaking in tongues in the congregation. That's specifically what it's talking about, okay? So I've given the title to this message, The Necessary Order in the Assembly. The Necessary Order in the Assembly. God requires a certain level of orderliness, and there is some order that needs to take place, and it is necessary while we are gathered together as the body in one place. Now I understand that this subject that I have been tasked with is not the most popular. I understand that there are whole groups of churches and Christian people out there who will just want to reject it wholesale because they feel like, oh well here we go again. Uh, but you know, you just not need be surprised that there will always be carnal self-serving Christian people making excuses all the time rather than just receiving God's word as it is and that is God's word. Amen? Uh, that's because the world today is disorderly. That's why that happens. And sadly, the world has so permeated into the church that far too many churches and church members find themselves being disorderly as well. And like I said earlier, we are told to avoid such. So what we're going to do is we're going to take God's word as it's intended, rightly divided. It's holy, it's pure, and it's right. So let's read together. I'm going to read out loud. You follow along, starting in verse number 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. And as we wrap up this entire message in chapter number 14, one last time, let's go before the Lord, let's ask Him to be our teacher, and we'll break this thing down. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as always, we are so very thankful for the orderliness and the lack of confusion, the clarity that you give through your word. Lord, that happens as the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us and opens our eyes to see and to understand. And so that's our prayer for this morning, that you will help us to order this truth in our minds, that you would give us your wisdom, 
Lord, may it never be said of us that we are out of order, whether individually or corporately. We desire to have your mind, and we desire for you to be pleased with us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off, and we're going to take most of our time on the first point. So as we are spending an extended period of time on the first point, just know that the last two will go fairly quickly, okay? You, you, you okay? So the first one is the direction for order. It's the first two verses, and really the first two verses are where it's all happening. I mean, this is, this is where, you know, I'm getting narrow eyes. <laughs> Women keeping silent. Oh, no, he's not really going to go there, is he, right? Uh, oh, yeah, the misogynistic church. I get it, right? It's so outdated. I can't believe that you people... Okay, relax. Just relax. It's really not going to be a big deal. You're going to see, first and foremost, just be reminded of something. If it's God's word, um, we just read it. If it's God's word, it's good. Amen? It's good and it's for our best interests. Amen, ladies? Hey, you, you spoke in church. How about that? I knew I'd get you. Relax is the key. Okay. Everything has a proper context, right? Everything always has a proper context. And today's context, I just wrote for you in your notes as a simple statement. God's structure for the church assembly requires everything to be under the proper authority. This is a theme all through the scriptures, right? God has a structure, and he has a specific structure for the assembly of Christian people. And when he does such, he requires that everything be within its proper authority structure we saw that in first corinthians chapter 11 when we studied it in verse number three it says but i would have you know that the head of every man is christ the head of the woman is the man and the head of christ is god everything after its order right so this particular application to women in the assembly of the church we'll see is specified several different ways okay the very first way is letter A in your notes, in a specific relation. In a specific relation. It starts off in verse 34 by saying, let your women. Let your women. Obviously, it's addressed to men. But really what he's referring to is the family relation. We could say, let your wives. And you say, how do you know that? Well, because in verse 35 it says, let them ask their husbands. Let your women, men, and let the women ask their husbands. See, by the way, single women are not off the hook because all women, forgive the terminology, but it actually just rolls, is belong to some man. All women are connected to some man, and that's just the way it is. It's part of the order God intended. Single women are connected to their fathers until they are married and the official handoff takes place. That's why in Christian weddings that we perform, we always have the father escort the bride down the aisle, and we always stop for a second. We say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father will say, her mother and I do. But really, biblically, it's the father's job to agree that he's handing over now the leadership responsibility of, of his daughter to her husband to her husband, and some dads would do well to remember that they gave permission after the daughters married. Okay, anyway, 
Biblically speaking, actually, and this is interesting, is that I don't know if you realize it or not, but women don't actually even have their own name. Women take the name of their husband. You say, well, not anymore. We're emancipated. We're modern. I don't take the name of my husband. I'm keeping my maiden name. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, well, congratulations. You've got the name of your father. I mean, you can go back. Well, my mother and I didn't. And so go back as far as you want, honey. I don't care where you go. At the end of the day, you have a man's name. Now, that may upset you, but it shouldn't because this is God's order. You can't escape it. God records in Genesis chapter 5 from the original creation in the first two verses, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Notice, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam and Eve. No, it's not what it says. He called their name Adam in the day when they were created. God named Eve after Adam. It was Adam that named Eve Eve, right? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. God didn't because she was the mother of all living. Is that a problem? No, it's not a problem. I'm just pointing out how God put this thing together. So it says, let your women... Let your women. We're just, we're just defining the relationship in which we're to understand this context. It goes on a little further in verse number 34, and it says that your women are commanded to be under obedience. Now, again, these are terms that don't always sit well with everybody in you know, the year in which we live. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that term, under obedience, is the exact same phrase that is translated a little differently in other places as being subject to or being submissive to. It's the exact same phrase. In other words, these ladies are commanded to support their God-given leadership roles. That's what they're commanded to do. That's stuff we already know. And it goes on and it says they're commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. So in the Old Testament, we wouldn't be surprised to see this structure. So upon this development of the very first family in Genesis chapter 3, and of course we know sin enters into the picture and kind of messes it up for all of us, but as God was laying out the consequences and how life would continue, he says in chapter 3 and verse 16, And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, by the way, that would not have been the exact way God would have intended for it all to play out. But because of sin, her desire will be toward her husband doesn't just mean, oh, I have such a great loving desire for you. That's not what it means. What it means is her desire is to be in charge. She will have a desire to want to take over the role of her husband. And as a result, the husband can't just cooperatively work with her if that's the case. He will have to actually rule her. And hence, we enter into 6,000 years of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the law said would happen. We're not going to go there, but if you want to jot down your notes and go home and look at it later, in Numbers chapter 30, it's not a long chapter. You could read the whole chapter. It's a very interesting situation where what we see is, is that where Moses is laying out, he's saying, look, if, if women are going to make vows before the Lord, 
If a woman makes a vow before the Lord and her husband hears the vow, he has a choice. He can either hold his peace, in which case, then, because he held his peace, her vow stands before the Lord as her vow. But if he interrupts and he says, oh, no, 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 no. Let's not make that vow, honey. (laughs) He can intervene and he can annul her vow to the Lord. And if she's not married, the same thing goes with her dad. So a lady can't even make a vow unto the Lord without her head, the male in her life that is her God-appointed leader, agreeing that this is the way it should be. The New Testament obviously teaches this principle over and over and over again. We will quickly review some of the places you're familiar with. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves, notice the phrase, unto your own husbands. Uh, I think we all understand here. The ladies are not required to submit themselves to every male that walks around. Amen, ladies. Right? So we're going to get you talking here. This is good. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, right? And he talks about headship. Uh, Colossians 3.18, virtually the same thing. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Why? Because it's fit in the Lord. It's the fitting thing to do. It's orderly. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 5, it says that the ladies are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Again, the word obedient is submissive. It's the same exact word. To their own husbands. Why? Because if they're not, the word of God is blasphemed. That's why. It's God's order. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection. Again, the same thing as a synonym. To your own husbands. That, if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives while they beheld your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning. I'm going to read this one because it's actually really good by the time we get to the end. Not the outward adorning and the plating of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And I just want to point out the fact that there is a God-given order, and God-given order includes with it, as we'll see before we're done today, unbelievable blessing and unbelievable influence and unbelievable fruitfulness, unbelievable effectiveness. All of the things we want in our lives all happen when we function within the order that God gave us. That's all. That's all. So the entire narrative, and all we did was basically look at that first statement, let your women The whole narrative begins with a reminder that women are subject to the men in their lives. That's God's order for them. Okay, so now the proper contextual application requires that we realize, and let her be in your notes, that it also needs to be applied in a specific location. So you have a specific relation. Now you need to understand a specific location. And the location is in the churches, verse 34. In the church, verse 35, right? Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. doesn't mean they never speak. It means that there's a certain specific role, and we'll get to that in a minute. Literally referring to speaking in tongues during the public assembly of the proclamation of the Word of God, openly in the assembly of the church. That is literally exactly what it's talking about. What it is not saying 
is that women are not allowed to exercise their vocal cords. That's not saying that. That would be ridiculous, right? So for example, let me give you some general principles of the Word of God. Psalm 107, verse number 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Are you the redeemed of the Lord? Amen. Okay, well then tell people about it. Say so. You're the redeemed of the Lord. Can women be? Of course. Uh, Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. We all raise our voices and praise the Lord. Why? Because we have breath. That's why. It's not gender specific. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 5 intimates, and I think it's fair, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. In other words, there's a place where they can pray, right? There's a place for things to happen. You just have to be within the right order because that's that thing about the headship. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, so there's a role for women even to do teaching, but it has to be a specific role. In the context, the location is in the churches. So in the first century, tongues was a legitimate spiritual gift. There's no question about it, but women were not allowed to use it in the assembly of the churches. That is clearly and directly what is stated by the text. It's very clear. So we see the specific relation and we see the specific location. The next Asian is vocation. A specific vocation. Okay, the context dictates that that which is not permitted in verse 34 has to do with teaching men in the assembly. That's what's not permitted. That's the vocation. The vocation of teaching the Bible publicly to all, men and women together. That's why the aged women teach young women, not men. That's what it says. Okay, so we're going to see the parallel passage to this is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse number 11, it says, Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. This is the exact same idea that's communicated in 1 Corinthians 14. That phrase, suffer not a woman to teach, okay, gives us a little more light on the passage, the phrase that's in 1 Corinthians, that they're not permitted to speak. See, the speaking has to do in the context of teaching, and the teaching is usurping the authority over men and doing that. So all the speaking in 1 Corinthians 14 certainly was either tongues or prophecy. In other words, in either case, it was the proclamation of God's word to all for the purpose of instruction of some level. And when in 1 Timothy chapter 2 it says that they are nor to usurp authority over the man, maybe your mind thinks, well, why? Is his ego too big? Uh, is his confidence too small? I mean, exactly why is it? I mean, we, we're, we're modern people now. We've grown past that. Be careful. Be careful. Theistic evolution is a sneaky little thing. Be careful you don't think that you've evolved to something greater than God says you are. Right? Let's just stay within the context, right? So why exactly is it then that God would set up such, such a structure? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Number one. Because men are specifically called to be the leaders. 
That's what he says. And they are called to be the leaders anytime there is a family environment, certainly in the home, certainly in our physical family. We've already seen those references, right? Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter, Titus, all these references. Certainly in the home, the man is ordained by God to be the leader and the head of the household, but also now in the church, because the church is a spiritual family. And the spiritual family is to be led by pastors and bishops. So 1 Timothy 2 ends the chapter with this discussion talking about the women keeping silence and not usurping authority over men, not being allowed to teach in the public assembly. And then just a couple verses down, we start chapter 3. And chapter 3 of 1 Timothy starts and says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Man, like male, not like mankind, like the males. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be, not it's a good idea or it's okay. No, it must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Uh, it doesn't say, and I don't care how you want to dumb it down and philosophize your way out of this thing, it does not, the husband of one wife means the, the man who desires the office of the bishop must be a man because only he qualifies to be the husband of one wife. It's not the spouse of one spouse. It's the husband, male, of one wife, female. I, I mean, we get it all messed up, don't we? I mean, are you going to really follow the culture? Are you, do you really want to follow the road that the culture has taken you down now? No, you don't. You want to stick with the Word of God. Of course that's where you want to stick. And so it says that he's to be the husband of one wife. Uh, it, look down a couple of verses to verse number 5. It says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, physical family, how shall he, man, take care of the church of God, spiritual family? That's just the order. That's the way he set it up. So that's one of the reasons why. Another reason why, number two, because women are more easily deceived. Because women are more easily deceived. So you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and it talks about women are to be silent and not to teach. Why is that? Well, because it goes on in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, for why is that that they have to be silent? Why can they not teach? Well, verse 13, for because Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Eve is the one who stepped out from her God-given position of being protected under the headship of her husband. And when she was all alone, she listened to the serpent twist the scriptures, and she took of the fruit, and she did eat. She was deceived when she entered into that first sin. Does that mean it doesn't count? No. Uh, no, it, it counts. <laughs> Listen, we're all witness of the fact that it counts. In fact, all through the law in Leviticus, it talks about sins that are done in ignorance. Still need a sacrifice. It's still sin. You might have not known it, but hey, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? And so we say that with civil law. It's also true with God's law. And so, as a result, man, she was deceived. But Adam, now, when she took of that thing and she ate of that fruit and she sinned and Adam showed up, it's like, hey, honey, what are you doing? Well, I don't know, the serpent gave me this thing. I thought I'd give her a shot. You want some? Adam knew. He knew what happened. 
He knew what went down. He knew how bad it was. He knew all, he knew all about it. And Adam wasn't deceived. He said, okay, I'll leave it too. And as a result, Adam pictures for us a beautiful type in that point, a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly took on sin so that he could live his life with his bride. Listen, that's what he's teaching us. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived being in the transgression. Listen, generally, I'm going to make generalistic statements here. Women are generally a little less rational and a little more emotional. God made them that way. You say, hey, I take exception to that. Okay, well, thank you, because the exception proves the rule. There is a rule, and there's always exceptions, of course. That is not negative. That is not demeaning in any way. It's a blessing. She keeps the family together. Ephesians 6.4 talks about raising your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And typically, the traditional roles are the woman is going to be the nurture, right? They're going to be the nurture in the nurture and admonition. And by the way, the kids like that side better. <laughs> they like that side better. And can I just tell you that this whole idea of the danger, the risk, the potentiality of women being deceived, well, that truth is never more evident than when a woman is pregnant and when her hormones are all jacked up. And That's why the very next verse in 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, the one nobody understands, says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Man, are we Mormons now? I mean, what's going on? She shall be saved in childbearing. Let's have a bunch of kids and make sure we say, no, that's not the context. She shall be saved from what? She shall be saved from being deceived. The deception is what's in, at hand. The deception is what's being talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Can you see that? Notwithstanding that she possibly can be deceived easily, generally speaking, she shall be saved from that deception while she's in the time of childbearing months, if they, husband and wife, the context is Adam and Eve, if they, the husband and wife, continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy 2 is not hard to understand. You just have to take the context as it is given. But when a woman decides to leave her God-given role and seeks to usurp the man's role, in this case, public Bible teaching in the assembly of the church, well, you better watch out because she's out of order. She's out of order. And you take your spare time and you go on YouTube and you see, for example, your favorite women preachers and teachers on TV, and I promise you they will always, at some point, they are going to stray from sound doctrine. They're going to stray from sound doctrine. Okay, there's one more thing we need to look at, and that's letter D, and that's in a specific education. The application of women being silent is in the context of a specific education. Verse 35, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Does that mean they know nothing and the men know everything? Of course, it's ridiculous. Of course not. <laughs> of course that's My goodness. That would just, that would be ignorant. Of course, no, listen, 
it is talking about theological education. That's exactly what it's talking about. In other words, in other words, don't publicly interrupt people. Don't get up and start shouting like you think you know or whatever the case might be. Listen, and it certainly is not saying that highly qualified, highly intelligent women who have studied some profession or course of understanding of life, they're experts in what they're experts in. This has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It only has to do with the public teaching of the Word of God and specifically jumping up and speaking in tongues in the midst of a congregation. That's all it's talking about. So, let me just say this. Verse 35 is still in the Bible. What are you going to do with that? If they will learn anything about the Scriptures, let them ask their husbands at home. Okay, so guys, how you doing? Because, you know, you've been thinking, all right, man, this is kind of cool. I'm glad I brought my wife here, right? <laughs> Until now. <laughs> because verse 35, y'all, dudes, is written presupposing that you're capable of giving her the answers. It presupposes that you're capable of giving her, her the answers to her questions. Hey, guys, you're not allowed to get up here and stomp your feet and make jokes about how the women need to be silent if you don't have the answers to her questions when she brings them to you. Listen, why are some of your wives running to me with their theological questions? Really? Some married women, why are some of your wives not going home and asking you. You ever think about that? Because, well, we'll get down to the part before we're done. It's a shame if that happens. It's a shame. And you know what? It ain't all just her shame. It's our shame if we can't handle it. It's our shame if we're not able to lead the way God intended for us to lead, right? Oh, but what if the lady is single? Well, then let her ask her father. I get it. Everybody, there are weird family dynamics these days. Not everybody has a traditional family role. I do understand that. But biblically, a single Christian lady, regardless of her age, biblically is under the authority of her father until the day she's married. That's what it says. Well, what if she's married to an unsaved man? Well, first and foremost, can I just speak to the single ladies? That's why that's a really dumb idea. Y'all, seriously, don't blow that one, okay? Uh, but, nevertheless, it happens, right? It happens. Uh, maybe he said he was saved because dudes will lie, <laughs> but uh, he's not. Or what if your saved husband is just so stinking carnal, he's just so unlearned, and he's just so lazy that he can't lead you? Well, can I just say that that's why God gave men to be the spiritual fathers and leaders of the spiritual family of the church that's why he did that the male leadership of the church should be submitted to in such a context but if a christian woman won't submit to the parameters of the word of god in these areas well then she's going to suffer from letter e in a specific humiliation where in verse 35 it says it's a shame for women to speak in the church Shame is an embarrassment. It's particularly embarrassing when there's a loud Christian woman in church and her husband is nowhere to be found. 
Always asking, interrupting, speaking, wanting, needing to be heard. That's a shame to her, and it's a shame to her husband. And in the Bible, I don't know if you know it or not, but shame is associated with nakedness. Shame is associated with nakedness. In Revelation chapter 3, and verse number 18, it talks about the shame of thy nakedness. And in Revelation chapter 16, and verse 15, it says basically the same thing. Lest he walk naked... And they see his shame. Nakedness needs a covering, right? It needs a covering. This just reinforces the biblical role of women as submissive and supporters of their husbands. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Ordinances are things that are ordered. There are things that are ordered. Verse number three, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Skip verse four, verses five and six. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if... Um, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, well, let her be covered. It's just an illustration to let you know as a woman would feel ashamed as though she had her head shaved bald. Similarly, don't be speaking out without being under your covering, under your head. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And all of this is stated in the context of the assembly when the church is gathered together. Verse 18, for first of all, when ye come together in the church. See, that's all. Now, every human body has parts that need to remain covered. Those parts are private. So, in this context, for a woman, they are reserved for their husbands in marriage. That's what they're reserved for. And should they be displayed in public, well, that would be a shame. That would be a shame to her. But that's a picture. That's a picture. Because now, women speaking authoritatively in church over men is speaking without their covering. It's as if the bride of Christ has revealed herself when she should remain covered. It's a shame. Not just to the woman, but to her husband, and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate bridegroom. And the Bible says such behavior will be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be, maybe it's not a sure thing. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, we live in a day and a time characterized by Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And, well, there's a lot of nakedness going on in Laodicea. So much so they didn't even understand it. Revelation 3, 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's 
That's how we see ourselves in this day and time, even in churches. We don't even understand. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, spiritually outside your covering. So as a result, verse 18, I counsel thee, Jesus says to that church, to buy of me, it's going to cost you something, gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. Well, what exactly is that white raiment? Well, we go fast forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Right? Amen. Amen. And his wife hath made herself ready. That's the church. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so in Laodicea, there's a whole lot of spiritually uncovered people because they don't have any righteousness. Righteousness comes from doing what's right. <laughs> it's from being biblical. And Paul, certainly knowing that this message would likely ruffle mama's feathers, quickly transitions to the next point. <laughs> and that's the derivation of order. This really won't take long. It's fairly intuitive. The order for the church assembly is derived from the explicit instruction of the word of God, of course. Verse 36, what? Came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? In other words, are you now the final authority or is God's word the final authority? Did the word come out from you? Are you the source of all truth? How ridiculous. Or came it unto you only? The Word of God, is, is there a, a unique special application for you that doesn't apply to anybody else? You see, this is my truth, preacher. I mean, this is, this is my truth. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. No truth is just your truth. All truth is common truth. All truth is common to all, and God who made it common for all is no respecter of persons. No respecter of persons whatsoever. So sound doctrine is the same and true for everybody. If it's not true in one place, it's not true any place, and vice versa. You say, well, we just do things differently here. Oh, well, great. Culturally, you have some freedom. But let me tell you what you don't have freedom to do, to change the doctrine. You don't have freedom to do that. You can't change the doctrine. Just because you live somewhere else, you, do th you just like to do things differently. That's just sin. That's what it is. The truth is this. This is in your notes. Non-biblical models of ministry exist only because no one is doing the biblical model properly. So we have situations where there are organizations that are referred to as parachurch organizations. A parachurch organization is an organization that was just, just popped up on their own. Somebody, it's, just a, it's a ministry organization. But it's not functioning specifically under the direct authority of a biblical New Testament church. Because only a biblical New Testament church is commissioned and sent to do the work of the ministry. In fact, this is such an important subject, it will be the subject of our 2019 Certainty Conference in the fall. Parachurch organizations do a lot of great things. A lot of people, I was saved hearing the witness of somebody who worked for a parachurch organization. I'm thankful. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm just telling you the structure's messed up. Why do they exist? They exist because churches aren't doing what they're supposed to do. 
and women leading in churches over men. Why does that exist? Is it really their fault? Uh, I would say it's the men's fault. If the men won't stand up and be men, and if the men won't lead like men are supposed to lead, and God-fearing women are like, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, I guess I'll do it if nobody else is doing it. Do you realize, guys, that the ladies in your life would be so thrilled for you to step up and be a man for a change and lead like God said? They will come behind and support and love and help and pull together. No competition whatsoever. They want that for you as much as the Lord does. But when women lead in these kind of contexts, it's a shame and it's a curse. You go back to the nation of Israel and God's going to send them back into captivity. Isaiah chapter 3 is a good place to read. And God's going to take away all the men. And he tells them this is a curse. It's a judgment on the nation. He says, you know what's going to happen? Women and children are going to lead you now. Women and children are going to lead you. That's a curse. That's a judgment. So Paul provides and this information. He divides the Corinthians basically into two categories. The first one is letter A, the informed. Verse number 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. In other words, if you really understand the word of God, like a prophet, or you're really walking with the Lord, or spiritual, then you will know, you will acknowledge that the things that I am writing unto you, Paul said, are God's commandments. You know what that means? That means that this letter that Paul's writing is inspired scripture. That's what it means. The things that I'm writing to you right now, they're the commandments of the Lord. That's what they are. This was during the first century. This was during the time when it was still being inspired and revealed. And can I just say, as we're wrapping up 1 Corinthians 14, and we're about to plunge into some new territory next week, the commandments of the Lord regarding speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 are actually very clear. They're very clear. For example, speaking in tongues without an interpreter means that nobody's ever edified. Don't do it. Uh, women are not to speak in tongues in church. That's clear. Uh, speaking five understandable words is far greater than 10,000 non-understandable words. That's clear. And if it's used in the assembly, you never need to have more than three people and there always needs to be interpretation. That's clear. Anybody can get that. In other words, inquiring minds want to know. And informed people will always go with the Bible. They'll go with the Bible every time. But not everybody's going to be informed. Letter B, some are going to be ignorant. So it says, but if any man be ignorant, you know, it's funny. Some people just refuse to learn. It doesn't matter how much you try and help them. It doesn't matter what you try and say or do. And I'm talking to Christians. Some people just don't have any use for the Bible. The Bible just its kind of that book that kills all their fun. They're just not interested in doing what the Lord wants. For some reason, they think in their mind, I don't know, I got a better plan. I'm going to go my way. Well, there's a lot of people like that. And so what does he say? If any man be ignorant, well, <laughs> let him be ignorant. I mean, what are you going to do? There's nothing you can do for him. Leave him alone. Romans 16, 17 says it this way. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. That's one problem. And offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. What are you supposed to do with them? Well, avoid them. That's what you're supposed to do. If any man's going to be ignorant. Right. I, mean, I can't make you. I can't make you learn. Just, just be ignorant. Just go, just go be ignorant over there. <laughs> 
And finally, we should all have point number three, the desire for order. Verse 39 talks about coveting, right, to prophesy. Okay, so that word covet all through the Bible, except for two times, is negative. Covet, covetousness, being covetous, uh, this lustful, selfish, prideful desire for this, always negative. Two times, it's positive. Here and in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, where it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. In both of those cases, the literal rendering means to be zealous or to desire. So this is the desire or the coveting of God's order in the assembly. And you do that by coveting to prophesy. In other words, desire to prophesy. Why? Because prophecy edifies. Prophecy builds people up all throughout chapter number 14. Prophecy gives understanding to the Word of God. And the Word of God is the thing that is the source of all of our order, so understanding the Word of God gives order to our lives. A desire for understanding God's Word is equivalent to a desire for order. And conversely, an avoidance of available understanding, well, that's a secret desire for chaos and disorder. I don't want to learn. Oh, you like chaos then, do you? Back in 2 Thessalonians, people who walk disorderly, well, they're to be avoided. They're to be avoided. Covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak in tongues. Well, it sounds like we've been forbidden it. Well, just listen. Yes, of course, forbid not to speak in tongues. If it's the first century, before the completion of the New Testament, at the time when the legitimate spiritual gift was in operation, together with the interpretation, to achieve the cash equivalent of prophecy. <laughs> if you're in that category, um, you're not. Then, forbid not to speak in tongues. But otherwise, don't mess with it. Because it has ceased. We, sit, we study that in chapter number 13. Okay. We're almost completely done. Let me summarize the entire message of 1 Corinthians 14 with one statement. This is actually good. This should help you. The statement is this. Biblical Christianity is not about the unexplainable miraculous. It's about revelation and submission. I mean, you got to get that. Biblical Christianity, y'all, is not about the unexplainable miraculous. To a lot of people, that's what biblical Christianity is. To a lot of people, they just want to experience the wild, crazy movements of the Spirit in ways that nobody can describe or understand or comprehend. They may be confusing, they may be weird, but man, they're miraculous, and as long as I'm a part of the show, man, that's Christianity. Uh, no, that actually is not Christianity. Uh, it's actually just the opposite. And so what you have here is God is trying to say over and over again, what you need to have is the revelation of God's word understood and then your will submissive to it. And that's way harder, isn't it? That's way harder than just showing up at a church service where all kind of crazy stuff are going on. You leave thinking, man, I don't know what happened, but that was kind of cool. No, what's harder is study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and then surrender your heart to the authority of God's word. That's the problem people have today. 
Verse 40, let all things, all things be done decently and in order. Whatever you do, they should be done decently and in order. In other words, they should make sense even to lost people. They should make sense even to lost people. Whatever you do, that doesn't mean they're going to agree with you, but whatever you do should be reasonable, orderly, proper. That's what we saw all through the chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 11, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be like unto him, unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Well, that's not orderly. Verse 22, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, we have the assembly, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you're mad? I mean, the whole idea is whatever we do should be decent, in order, not confusing, revelation, understandable. And then each of you decide, by faith, are you going to surrender to it or not? That's the order, the necessary order for the assembly of God's people. That's what it's all about. And that is an appropriate end to all of this that we've studied in here. Listen, how you conduct yourself is your testimony. It's a critical part of your mission. So you need to seek the order that God defines in his word. And just surrender your will to that. That could be in salvation. If you've never known that you're saved, you need to surrender your will to the revelation of the fact that you are a sinner on your way to hell. And Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it begins with understanding the revelation and surrendering to it. Or if you've already done that, that's the exact same way that you grow. You're going to grow by surrendering your will to God's authority, the revelation of his word. And too many people in Laodicea have made the first decision and they got their get-out-of-hell-free ticket. But they've said, yeah, no thanks to that growing in Christ and constantly studying and constantly learning and constantly surrendering and walking in holiness and sanctification. And so we live in a weird time. And the rapture of the church is going to come, well, because we've blown it. Because we've blown it. Well, we don't have to be a part of that. We can be those among whom the Lord says, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the glory of the Lord. And so let's pray, let's respond to the Lord, and let's give him his due in our hearts. Heavenly Father.